Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for August 26, 2020. Thank you all for tuning in again and checking out the show. I hope you're all doing well. If you happen upon this interview by your favorite podcast app and you haven't checked out Foreign Exchanges, the newsletter, uh, please do so. It's at fx.substack.com. I would also urge you, if you're already uh, signed up for FX, or even if you're not, uh, to check out Discontents. Uh, It's another Substack newsletter, discontents.substack.com. I'm a part of that newsletter along with a number of other writers and podcasters at Substack who do some uh, tremendous work and we uh, put out a newsletter. It's a free newsletter. It doesn't cost you anything to sign up for it uh, once a week uh, to kind of keep people updated on what we've all been doing. Uh, So definitely I would urge you, I think it's a nice uh, newsletter to get once a week. Again, it's free. Uh, I would uh, urge you to go check it out and sign up for our free email list, discontents.substack.com. I'm being joined uh, again today by a friend of foreign exchanges and expert in the Sahel, uh, Alex Thurston. Uh, Alex is assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, He's also a regular guest on this podcast. Uh, Partly because the region that he studies and uh, uh, analyzes is so uh, (laughs) tumultuous. I was trying to look for the right word there. Sorry. Uh, Tumultuous, I guess, is a good word. Um, It is particularly tumultuous right now. Uh, Last week, we saw a military coup that overthrew the president, then president, I suppose, of Mali, uh, Ibrahim Boubacar Kaita. Uh, and so, um, things are in a bit of upheaval right now. There is a military junta in charge of Mali that has talked about, uh, rapidly transitioning back to civilian rule and elections, but it's also talked about maybe staying in power for three years, uh, or maybe one year, uh, or maybe, uh, just partially staying in power while a civilian government kind of, uh, is formed underneath it. Uh, there's a lot that's still very much up in the air here. The international response to the coup has been resoundingly negative, and we'll talk about that. Uh, the uh, economic community of West African states, uh, the African Union, uh, the United Nations, France, the EU, the U.S., all kind of uh, reacting negatively. Uh, on uh, In contrast, uh, the reaction inside Mali has been almost universally positive from what I can tell. Alex may have some uh, some more detail on that. Uh, so the dichotomy there, I think, is something that's worth exploring uh, as well. Uh, so I will get Alex on the line here and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll discuss all of these things. We'll discuss Kaita. Uh, we will discuss uh, the coup itself, what we know about the coup, um, as yet, uh, what it looks like their intentions might be, the dynamics surrounding it, maybe get an update on the conflict between the Malian government and Islamist groups, which is one of the things that's uh, driven a lot of public resentment against Kaita. Uh, and so, you know, just kind of try and get some grounding and some context for uh, this huge political change that we've just seen. Um, Alex has a book coming out uh, later.
later this year called Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, Local Politics and Rebel Groups. Uh, I'll try to give him uh, some time at the end to talk about that. It seems particularly relevant uh, right now in the context of these events. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he'll be plugging that at the end of the interview, but you should definitely, uh, you know, if you're interested in this region, uh, and interested in these dynamics, you should definitely check that out. Uh, all right. Uh, with that said, uh, let me fire up the Skype. I never know if I'm doing Skype or Zoom anymore, but today I think we're doing Skype. So, uh, let me fire that up and uh, we'll get the interview started. All right, I'm being joined by Alex Thurston of the University of Cincinnati, uh, our regular <laughs> guest returning <laughs> champion. Uh, this time we're here to talk about the coup last week in Mali. Alex, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, I'm always happy to have you, but I kind of wish we didn't have to do these so often because <laughs> that would mean things were a little calmer in the Sahel, but... Uh, be that as it may, again, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, a lot of grim topics. <sighs> so uh, why don't we start by kind of um, building up to the, the last week's coup and let's uh, give people some background about uh, the now former president of Mali, Ibrahim Boubacar Kaita. Um, and his emergence, which I think we need to go back to the previous coup, Molly's previous coup in 2012, uh, which happened in the context of the, the conflict between the government and the Tuareg rebels in the north and kind of uh, contributed to the a war that really is still going on in some ways. The peace process seems to have stalled, which is one of the things we'll talk about when we talk about uh, Kaita and his ouster, but sort of give people uh, the background on, on him and his emergence um, after the 2012 coup, uh, and what kind of president has has Kaita been, uh, or was, I guess, not has been, but was, uh, was he? Yeah, no, a lot to a lot to unpack. I'll I'll refer to him as a lot of Malians do by by his initials Ibeka, which I think is fairly fairly uh, fairly easy. This is the Malian practice for whatever reason is they refer to a lot of their their politicians by by their their three initials. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess to start, so a lot of the politicians in the Sahel now, a lot of the leading politicians are people who are are sort of francophone not just in a linguistic sense but in an educational sense and and maybe in terms of, of orientation a lot of them are french educated they're they're very familiar with france you know to some extent they're they're attuned to you know paris and so forth i'm not i don't want to call them you know creatures of france or something like that but but you know maybe one thing worth noting is that you know countries like mali burkina faso niger they get sort of uh, glossed as as francophone when we talk about them, and French is often the official language there. But that doesn't mean that everybody speaks French, or or that it's the primary means of communication. So so to say that you know a politician is francophone, I'm, I guess I'm saying something more than just they come from, you know, a quote unquote French speaking country, but that they're sort of, you know, that 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 France has been a part of their professional development and, and itinerary. 
Um, so a lot of these figures, you know, they, they, they were, say, bankers or development economists or they were working for major institutions internationally or domestically in their own country, you know, either in government or, or you know, in government adjacent sectors in the 80s. Then in Mali and elsewhere, you had democratization movements in the 1990s. And so, you know, a lot of them then entered party politics and, and rose within party politics. So Ibeka was the prime minister of Mali from 1994 to 2000. Um, and so they, you know, one one big complaint in Mali, you know, recently during the summer of protests and amid the coup has been that there's a, a political class. This is the recurring phrase. There's a political class, a, a cast of characters uh, that, that doesn't really change that much. Um, and that Ibeka was one member and, and one symbol of that. Um, so by the time even of the crisis in 2012, the, the Tuareg-led rebellion in the north, the military coup of that year, he was a, a well-known you know, figure who had, who had had presidential ambitions for a long time. There was the coup, as, as you mentioned, in 2012, and then a transition to a civilian system. So first uh, an interim government and then an elected government. So Ibeka won the presidential election in 2013 and then won re-election in 2018. And he won pretty massively both times. I mean, in the in the second round in 2018, they, they have a two-round system like many of the countries in, in West Africa do and like France does. Um, in the second round in 2018, he won something like 67%. But at the same time, he, he you know, the, those elections were pretty low turnout, as a lot of Mali's elections have been. Um, there were concerns, or at least I have concerns, about the, the integrity of the, election, the elections in different parts of the country. So, you know, I think there was maybe uh, an, an inflated or exaggerated sense of, of how popular he really was. And, and I think that helps to explain, you know, how, how easily he fell this summer and, and how low the chances are negligible at this point of him coming back. Um, what to say about his time in pre as president. I think he was dealt uh, one of the worst hands that you can imagine. And, and I don't know, you know, that, that even a, a superhuman political talent could succeed as, as president of Mali. I mean, it's, it's one of the toughest jobs that I could imagine. I mean, to, to come into office, you know, just a few months after uh, a, a jihadist sort of proto-state has been toppled in the north to, to contend with the severe poverty of, of Mali, recurring food insecurity, uh, continued conflict in the north, uh, a host of, of extremely um, uh, savvy and shifting armed actors, uh, the continued jihadist presence, the expansion of violence, jihadist violence, intercommunal violence into the center of the country, um, you know, really contentious politics in Bamako, in the capital, um, all of that was was a lot. I mean, it would be a lot for anybody to to really confront. I think, though, that he made a series of, of mistakes. Um, maybe the first that I would point to is is the the purchase of a presidential jet for I don't recall the sum, but some some grossly inflated sum. You know, very early in his presidency. Um, I think that you know sometimes uh, outsiders are, are are too quick to assume that. Um, that, 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 that any political system can function without some degree of corruption, right? Sometimes leaders have to, you know, they have to have people around them they can trust. There, there sometimes are, are multiple pressures within the system for, 
corruption and nepotism. On the other hand, you know, things like the purchase of this jet were just just seemed to be so, you know, uh, frivolous and and lavish and wasteful. You know that I think it I think it uh, quickly um, you know set a tone that that. That, that irritated people, that, that made people angry, you know, even if even if there might have been some understanding that that you need a kind of production, productive cr- corruption within the system. This was, you know, seen again as, as just sort of gross. Um, and then I think he made another series of mistakes. You know, he, he would he would change his his governments and prime ministers, you know, basically on an annual basis. Um, anytime there was sort of a political crisis or a problem, you know, his, his first instinct was often to you know, replace the prime minister or, or shake up the government. Um, he did not respond very forcefully to things like abuses by the security forces. He was slow to wake up to the crisis in the center of the country. Um, and so he just came to seem ineffective and corrupt and disconnected. He, he promoted family members and, and favored their careers within government. Uh, and, and then by the time you got to this summer, he was very uh, slow to, to react to the protests that, that you know, gained steam in, in June and July that, that, that explicitly called for his resignation. And he had already, I think, played a lot of the cards that, that he might have otherwise played. You know? So by the time you got to, say, the, the sixth or seventh offer to, to replace the prime minister or to shake up the cabinet and so forth, um, or not even to replace the prime minister, I should say, but just to, to keep the same prime minister and, and come up with a new unity cabinet. Um, those kinds of offers, by the time you know he had done them various times, were were seeming very stale. And so you know he he just seemed to have run out of ideas by this summer, and and that became part of the background to this coup. All right, so you, I mean, you've gone through a lot of this stuff, and I I, I want to kind of unpack. A little bit of it because there is a I mean obviously he was president for for several years there's quite a record to deal with some good some bad I should note uh, by the way if people are interested in in more detail on this story they should definitely be checking out uh, your blog uh, sahablog.wordpress.com uh, I've we've plugged that on the show innumerable times but it's a it's an invaluable resource you guys should uh, definitely check that out Thank you. Um, but uh, so let's talk about the immediate context for what happened last week, which is, uh, as you mentioned, there has been this very large, very uh, anti-Ibeka protest movement that has developed this year. And the, the context for that is obviously all of the stuff that's been going on, the, the allegations of corruption, a weak economy, the kind of stalled process of implementing the, the a peace deal with the Tuaregs in the north, uh, the rise of, of jihadist violence and groups like uh, JNIM and, and uh, you know, Islamic State are, are more and more active. And, uh, you know, this is all kind of built to a level of frustration with, uh, with Ibe Ka, who, as you also said, you know, doesn't really ever seem to have an answer when people are, are kind of on him about these things, except to like swap out the prime minister for somebody else, which is obviously not uh, satisfying even in, in sort of the first time you do it, let alone the sixth or seventh time you do it. 
Um, but there was specifically um, the 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 sort of last uh, kind of straw. It seems like was uh, the parliamentary election earlier this year, in which uh, the you know opposition politicians seemed to do very well uh, until the constitutional court kind of stepped in, and uh, members of that court, having been appointed by Ibeka. Uh, overturned partially some of the results of that election to the benefit uh, of establishment pro-government politicians. And and that seems to have finally kind of been the thing that put people in the streets. Talk about that election and, and the protest movement that emerged and uh, some of the leaders, the civilian leaders, uh, we won't get into the coup leaders just yet, um, but you know, talk a little bit about, about that process. Yeah, so I mean, you you summed it up extremely well in your in your question. The the issues had been building for a long time, but then these these legislative elections came in March and April in two rounds. And as you said, after the second round of elections was over, there was an initial proclamation of results by the Ministry of Territorial Administration, and then the Constitutional Court weighed in, basically threw out a, a fair number of ballots in in know, 31 different constituencies and, and change the results of those 31 seats, uh, often to the benefit of, of Keita's party, of the, the, the RPM, as it's called. Um, that then generated some protests, you know, basically in, in early May, but then also set the stage for these bigger protests that began in, in early June. So this movement arose in, in early June, calling itself first the June 5th movement after the, the date of their first mass protest um, and then called the, the, the M5 RFP or the, 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 the June 5th movement rally of patriotic forces. Um, they then explicitly demanded the resignation of Ibeka and that group was led by a coalition of different opposition politicians, civil society actors and then an extremely prominent Muslim religious leader named Mahmoud Diko who's an imam based in the capital. He's a, a past president of the uh, High Islamic Council of Mali, which is a kind of governmental body for, for representing the, the overwhelmingly Muslim population of the country. Uh, and so they held a series of, of three major protests in June and July and threw Malian politics into crisis. They didn't necessarily have massive support or at least not clear massive support beyond Bamako. But within Bamako, they turned out, it's anybody's guess. I mean, there, there were, you know, footage from drones and so forth seeming to suggest tens of thousands of people, uh, all of them calling for the resignation of the president. And again, the president offered, I think, too little, too late. Uh, regional mediators got involved. Uh, the, the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, got involved. Uh, attempting to mediate between the protesters and, and the president. But things that he offered, you know, first, again, you know, this kind of unity government cabinet reshuffle was was not what the protesters were interested in. Um, and by the time he got around to offering things like, you know, rerunning or, or overturning the results of those 31 uh, parliamentary seats or, you know, replacing the members of the constitutional court, he, he just always seemed to be about two steps behind what might have, have satisfied people. 
and the coup came in a context where the the M5 RFP was was planning, you know, or starting to undertake another series of of mass actions. Uh, one thing that I wanted to um, mention, which is kind of part of the background here, the electoral background, is and something that you've um, written about it at your blog is the kidnapping of uh, the opposition leader Somalia Sisse uh, in March, around the time of the uh, parliamentary election. Um, can you, uh, you know, tell us? A little bit about that very kind of disturbing and strange story, uh, which still hasn't been resolved. He's still not his whereabouts are still unknown. Um, and and did that play into um, you know sort of public um, anger over the 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 way that the elections were conducted? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a good piece at um, Jacobin, by the way, by the, the historian, the American historian Gregory Mann, who's, who's you know one of the leading specialists of uh, on Mali, uh, and he talks about the kidnapping of Sise in there, and he notes that, you know, it's 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 because of the 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 the, the, the drama and the, and the seriousness of the coup and everything that that the kidnapping of Sise has become kind of a minor part of the story, but that but that. In any other context, it would be the story, right? To have the leader of a country's entire opposition be kidnapped and then held for, you know, I think we're at more than 150 days now. I mean, it's it's uh, it's really grim, and and it should be getting a lot more attention. So yeah, so he was kid- he was he was campaigning for a parliamentary seat in his home district, which is in the southern Timbuktu region. So, sort of in the north, or you know, the southern part of the north, or the northern part of the center, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, and was kidnapped, presumably by jihadists, although it's still not entirely clear. Um, and he's been then held since then, presumably in northern Mali. But but again, you know, the details are a bit sparse. Um, the Red Cross the other day said that they had been able to, to deliver some letters from him to his family. So there are people who are in contact with the kidnappers. But Ibeka's administration was really criticized, I think, rightly for their... Uh, lackluster response to the kidnapping. It, it took them several weeks to set up their kind of crisis cell, and then they staffed it with military officers and, and didn't and seemed reluctant to kind of bring in the, the the senior politicians or religious leaders or civil society people who who might have really stood a chance of making contact with the kidnappers and, and negotiating his release. So. Yeah, I mean, Cisse in and of himself has has not always been super popular. He's he's another member of this political class, you know, an ex finance minister, a very familiar face on the political scene, um, somebody who was the runner up against Ibeka in both 2013 and 2018. There was a, a poll that I've gone back to a couple times of, of Bamako residents conducted in December of 2019, and it showed just abysmal favorability ratings for Ibeka and for Cisse. So both of them with favorability ratings of, you know, just around 30%. So he's not necessarily, Cisse is not necessarily a, a super popular guy among all Malians, but but I think even among people who aren't fans of him, just the, the, the very sad, I mean, kidnapping and, and extended detention of, of this figure, you know, really, I think, became another symbol of Ibeka's poor performance. 
Let's talk about what happened then last week. Um, what what do we know uh, about the coup at this point? It strikes me that we don't really know still very much. Um, you know, on the day that it happened, it seemed like, um, you know, it started out as a as a mutiny. That was how it was reported, at least in you know in Western media uh, in the morning, and only by like late that night it had become this uh, full blown coup, and Kaita was resigning, and um, so it seemed. It strikes me that we don't even have a really good sense of whether this was a planned event. Or sort of a spur of the moment thing that that there was a uh, an uprising at a military base, the same base where the 2012 coup started, yeah. um, and, and that sort of caught fire and and got out of hand. What do we what do we know at this point, uh, and what are some of the questions that are still out there about the the coup itself? Yeah, this is the 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 dominant reporting is that it's a mutiny that escalated into a coup, you know, in in the space of less than 24 hours. I think that that's plausible. On the other hand, you know, the the junta are it's it's made up of, you know, mostly colonels, um, people who have pretty formidable resumes uh, and 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 who come from different parts of the, the armed forces, you know, who come out of special forces, who come out of the Air Force who come out of the, the army, who have done time with the National Guard. Um, you know, these are these are serious people. It's it's that is so. So, you know, if the events played out in a very similar way to 2012, the composition of the junta is is quite different. So the, the 2012 junta was led by a captain. It seemed like, you know, more the kind of classic junior officers coup. This is kind of a, a nearly senior officers coup. And, and I I mean, I don't want to. I don't know. I don't want to be pegged as a, a conspiracy theorist, but I, but it seems to me just the, the the team that they put together on very short notice, I, I it would seem to me hard to believe that there wasn't a bit more advanced planning. But on the other hand, you know, some of the best journalists working on working on these stories have 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 concluded that it was this mutiny that escalated. So, yeah, it, a lot remains unclear. I don't I mean, I think there are big questions about whether there was coordination with the the protest movement so far i'm actually inclined to say no that that i don't think they they coordinated with them but um coordination amongst the officers themselves in advance of the day of the coup yeah i, I would i would probably lean toward that i think uh, yeah i mean one of the things um and as you say the the fact that they were able to kind of um it seems like hit the ground running uh, suggests that they had at least discussed the possibility of right. uh, like what happens if if we were really successful and we can like march on Bamako and and take these guys out. Um, the I mean and and the level of the coup I think you're right the the the, the colonel level uh, a colonel level coup you know the, they tend to put some thought into these things in terms of. Like, what's it going to look like when we, you know, if we get to take over the country? So uh, I, I, I tend to agree with that. On the other hand, um, one of the things that argues against the notion that, that this was uh, a, a kind of a thought out thing is I, I don't think 
they've articulated a plan yet. I mean, they've articulated some ideas of a plan for transitioning eventually back to military rule, but there there hasn't been. Um, and I said, I guess, sort of, this is this is my next question. Like, do we have a sense of what their goal is here? Like, is it a one year? I've heard one year transition. I've heard three year transition. Uh, you know the international community, which we'll we'll get into, and that's a whole another thing we'll get into in a few minutes here. Uh, you know, is pushing for something very very quick. Um, but I I don't see like an, an agenda yet apart from uh you know like we're gonna end the bad things and do good things, which isn't really a a plan so to speak. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I think they have they have neither sort of a detailed plan for the transition yet nor nor any sort of ideological you know uh, distinct ideological outlook that that i can discern um and i think yeah i mean they've been you know they they denied the the there was the media report coming out that they wanted a three-year transition and then they denied that you know they're actively negotiating with with everyone basically i mean they've been meeting they've just been having a stream of meetings with ECOWAS, you know, they recently met, I believe, with the American and the French ambassadors. I mean, they're meeting with different segments of, of you know, Malian civil society and, and uh, you know, the political class and so forth. I mean, I think a lot of actors, you know, the, the Junta and others, I mean, they don't want to set the stage for, for what sometimes now is starting to seem like a cycle in Malian politics. I mean, to to transition rapidly to elections, hold elections, elect another very familiar face, have that person in power for one or two terms and then have another coup. Everybody wants, I think most people want to avoid that. Um, But I think there's also a real uh, allergy on the part of ECOWAS and and, and many Malian actors to having some kind of extended military-led transition. Um, I suppose then you could have an extended civilian-led transition but then you're back to some of the same issues, which is that, you know, if they pick some elder statesman to, to head the transition, that too would be another very familiar figure. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's really evolving and improvised on that side of things. We're already, I mean, we're already starting to get into this, so we, we, we might as well talk about the response uh, to the coup. And the thing that struck me uh, most in the, the week or so uh, since this took place uh, is the stark difference in the way that the coup has been received internationally. And you've already talked about some of the players, ECOWAS, um, the U.S., France, but, you know, including the African Union, uh, the European Union, the United Nations, all kind of uniformly um, you know, coming out against this, and it is a military coup. I mean, we should say that it's not. Uh, this is not a, not something that 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 typically is is looked on favorably by anybody, uh, or at least by most people. Um, you know, all but all kind of coming out. You know, very strongly in favor or opposed to to the coup, and even initially, you know, ECOWAS and and. Um, the the AU were demanding that you know Kaita be reinstated. That's obviously uh, not going to happen. Um, but ca- to contrast that with the response inside Mali, and admittedly, uh, you know, uh, it, it's hard to assess 
how uh, even a major political event in, in Bamako is being received, like in northern Mali or in the very rural parts of Mali. Uh, right. And yet there seems to be nary a... Uh, kind of discouraging word about these guys. People are so happy uh, to see, you know, Ibeka go. Um, and I, I, you know, maybe if you press them, they would, uh, you know, be, you know, they would have some questions about what comes next. But right now, uh, the dominant public image seems to be of people celebrating in the streets that they're rid of this president that they didn't like. Can you kind of contrast those things and and maybe talk a little bit about why they're so different you you wrote something you wrote a little bit about this uh, at your blog there's sort of a an international demand especially in the sahel but it's it's true i think across the developing world uh for stability and you can put that in air quotes because it it doesn't it's not clear what it means but it it doesn't really mean stability uh it means sort of a leader who uh, you know, keeps a lid on things for all the right people and kind of makes makes things, you know, uh, for uh, counterterrorism, let's say, or for, you know, uh, political elites or international institutions. Uh, you know, talk about talk about some of these issues and, and what what it says that there's so much international opposition, but the public in Mali is, is uh, you know, really seems to be quite in favor of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, really, really well said and interesting. I mean, I think I would, I think I would, I think I would disagree a bit about the international response. I mean, I think that, I think that there's an emerging, or maybe the international response, I would say, has been sort of dynamic in that I think it went pretty quickly from, from uh, an opposition to the coup to, to a soft acceptance of the coup. I mean, I don't think that the, I don't think that the French or, or anybody, they're not going to say, you know, we, we celebrate this and we welcome this. But I, I, there have not been a lot of tears shed outside of, of, of West Africa and even, I think, within West Africa for, for Ibeka, you know. And I think that ECOWAS was, was calling for him to be reinstated, but that's really beginning to fade. And I think that... Is it is it fading, though? I mean, is it fading because nobody, you know, really cares about this or because you know the ECOWAS sent its team in and they must have seen I mean they must have seen for themselves that this was not going to happen and they had to play you have to find right. some other way to move forward because right. you're not going to going to see this guy put back in power right right yeah definitely definitely I mean I think yeah and I think that there's still I think the ECOWAS leaders are still nervous about the the precedent that the coup sets or or the precedent that it reinforces of of the military stepping in against you know what the military sees as an underperforming president i mean a lot of that that would make a lot of other ECOWAS leaders you know nervous on on their own home fronts and and they don't want to see that idea gain traction at the regional level but i guess i mean i i guess i'm saying you know maybe for france and even for the united states i mean i i don't think they're I don't think they're super broken up about the coup. I get. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's not fair to say, but but just watching like you know Macron, others like, you know how they talk about it. It it seems like they're they're quite happy to now move on. I mean, not that they want extended military rule in Mali, but but that they're they're looking forward and not backward at all. 
Yeah, and I mean, then at the level of the, I mean, at the level of the street, or at least in Bamako, there seems to be massive support. I mean, there were you know, a Malian pollster took took a poll. I don't recall the exact numbers, but just showing, you know, overwhelming support for for the coup. Um, as you say, it's harder, much harder to get a sense, you know, beyond Bamako of how people feel. Um, but definitely, and this this also happened in 2012. I mean, definitely one gets the sense that, you know, the the regime that has fallen was quite brittle and unpopular and that and that people are really hungry for some kind of change i mean i think there's even a, a danger now you know and this again is points to a difference between 2012 and 2020 you know in 2020 the, the pressure came down just immediately on on the captain sanogo who led that coup to, to transition and the transition came within you know about you know, just a couple of weeks. I mean, I think I think you know, roughly three weeks. And there, the constitutional order was was restored pretty quickly. You know, they they did what the constitution said, at least in part, which was to make the president of the national assembly the the interim president. Um, here, there's a sense that things are much more kind of negotiable and and up for grabs. And I don't I don't think the junta will be in power for three years, but I don't. I think they'll also be in power for more than three weeks. And I think there's even a little bit of a danger of. Of the seduction of having a man in uniform as 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 the head of the country, I mean, and, and I think that the sort of professionalism and relative media savvy of the of the junta, you know, increases that danger a little bit. I mean, I don't know that I would say that Asimi Goita, the the, the the head of the junta, is like super charismatic or something, but but already in sort of the photos, you know, you sort of, you know, you see him sort of listening quietly and calmly at the head of the table, and there, there's this sort of you know, there, there's there's a much firmer sense that these that these colonels are in control than there was in in 2012. Um, how all that plays out, I'm I'm not sure, but yeah, the the support. I guess I'm saying the support for the coup and then the the, the relative professionalism of the coup leaders, you know, makes makes them a serious political force in a way that the 2012 junta was was less so. The I I, I think I mean yeah, part of. It seems to me uh, part of the um, the turnaround that you note in the way that France, in particular, and the United States as well, have have sort of come to accept the coup uh, in the days since it took place, uh, is because the junta has has basically said the right things. Like they're not yeah. talking about kicking. Uh, the French military out of Mali or uh, of kind of, you know, exiting from any of the, uh, the regional kind of French led uh, anti Islamist, anti jihadist operations uh, that are going on. They were just this morning, I think the uh, international Francophone, organization i don't know the the official name uh suspended molly's membership over the right. coup and that's one of those organizations that you kind of know exists but stay blissfully <laughs> ignorant of for the most part until something like this happens uh i i wanted to talk i want to talk about uh, the french government in particular and its role in the sahel uh, and, um, you know, we can talk about Macron, uh, especially who seems very keen on kind of asserting France's, 
uh, let's say, post-colonial prerogatives in the region in a, in a way that, um, you know, I think makes me uncomfortable to watch, although I don't have, you know, uh, as much kind of detailed understanding of that dynamic. Um, but, and ha has intervened in ways, you know, under the guise of a, a sort of counterterrorism operation has intervened in ways that have protected some of the leaders. I mean, Idris Debbie and uh, Chad, you know, he, he, this, uh, you know, he's intervened in ways that have protected some of these guys, some of these long-term, uh, you know, maybe uh, not so stable heads of state in the region. Um, talk, can you talk a little bit about what it is that, that the French government wants out of the Sahel and what does it want in a leader, uh, of a Sahelian nation? Uh, and, and, you know, how did, how does that all kind of factor into, uh, you know, the, 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 the political situation in Mali. I think, uh, you know, you've, you've alluded to this, that it, it, it sort of is one of the things that complicates um, running Mali is there, there's these external stakeholders and France is one is perhaps the biggest one uh, that don't seem to want to leave the region alone. Yeah. I mean, I, I take, I guess I take France at their word that they, that they want, security for the Sahel they they want the the defeat and, and dismantling of the jihadist groups and and they want the region to to be able to develop and and so forth I mean I, I don't you know there, there's there's a lot of conspiracy theories in that one hears in in Bamako or, or elsewhere and I think very understandable conspiracy theories though by the way I should say I mean and and maybe I should even come up with a better word than than conspiracy theories because I think the understanding is the, the the reactions are very understandable. You know, a lot of Malians whom I've met have said, you know, France must have some kind of malevolent motive because they've been here for so long in the name of security and things just get more insecure. Right? I think it's understandable people feel that way. I don't I don't see it that way. I don't think they're malevolent, but I think that they get drawn into all kinds of of contradictions and, and problems. And I don't think that they have a very sophisticated take, uh, you know, about politics. And I, I think there's kind of a risk aversion, you know, that, that they prefer to stick with kind of the leaders that they know, but then that approach ends up generating all kinds of risks. Um, so yeah, as you know, I mean, they, 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 you know, explicitly intervened with their, with their counterterrorism force in, in February, 2019 to project, to protect uh, Idris Deby, the dictator of Chad against uh, a rebel incursion, you know, in, in a way that that, you know, clearly showed that their counterterrorism force is, is not just about fighting jihadists, but but it can also be for the protection of incumbents, um, maybe a bit more subtly than that. I mean, both the French and, and the American government, you know, accepted, I think, pretty unquestioningly the, the, the reelection of uh, Niger's president, Isufu, in 2016, even though he had kept his his main opponent in jail for the duration of the campaign and, and even though he won by you know something like 92.5 percent in in the second round um so they've been you know there there was uh i mean this was even before the the real wave of insecurity began but you know there was relative french acceptance for uh, a coup in mauritania in 2008 which was then followed by one of those coup leaders running and winning as the elected president so you know the the French, I think, have shown a lot of support for for incumbents. But then, as this example, you know, with the coup shows, they they sometimes 
you know, can then can then discard those same allies, you know, relatively relatively quickly. Um, and yeah, I think that the French presence, you know, it 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 has generated more and more uh, suspicion and and anger on the part of populations, maybe particularly on the part of populations that are politically, you know, active and and uh, plugged in, in in the capitals, you know, not just in Bamako but also in Burkina Faso and and in Niger and so forth. Um, and yeah, I think that just the the optic of having France conduct counterterrorism operations at a pretty rapid tempo on one's own soil, it, it just shows that the leaders aren't fully sovereign. I mean, there's there are reasons for that, right? And and again, I think France, you know, I think their strategy is misguided, but I think they feel that by killing you know jihadist leaders there that they're ultimately contributing to more stability but but i don't think it works out that way in practice let's talk a little about well since we're already sort of on on a regional taking regional view here let's talk a little bit about um what the coup could mean uh, for the sahel and and really you know what any kind of um, added political instability in Mali could mean for the rest of the Sahel. And, and I mean, you can talk about this sort of um, transnational uh, fight against groups like the Islamic State, uh, against JNIM, the Al-Qaeda affiliate that's, that's most active in Mali. I mean, you look at Burkina Faso to the south, you know, you just uh, wrote about this today. There's, you know, some, uh, you know, one million people have been internally displaced in Burkina Faso. And and a lot of that, a lot of the Islamist violence that's contributed to that has either uh, been influenced by or outright kind of spilled over from Mali. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what what are the sort of... Uh, maybe best and worst case scenarios, I guess, for what happens for for this scenario in Mali kind of playing out on a at a regional level. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a big question. I mean, you know, one I mean, one of the grimmest things is just that the 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 continuation of current trends in and of itself without any further political disruptions or anything, that would be very bad. I mean, the 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 geographical spread of the insecurity the the rising levels of civilian fatalities i mean all of that you know people when when covid hit um you know people were saying oh this will benefit jihadists you know now now there's the question of whether the coup will benefit jihadists but but jihadists i guess were already benefiting from from trends that have been in place basically since you know 2017 and and to some extent since trends in place since 2012 um so no, the the trajectory is is bad. I mean, I guess the coup leaders in Mali hope that, you know, by removing Keita, that that they'll pave the way for somebody who is less corrupt, more effective, better at at managing politics in Bamako and and not having that consume so much of their energy. Better at implementing the the 2015 peace accord that you've that you've mentioned a couple times. Uh, better at. Um, you know, uh, managing the insecurity and so forth. But but a lot of the trends are just structural. I mean, some of the trends have to do with the, the security for the, the abuses that the security forces themselves commit. Um, and those are widespread enough 
you know, from from Mali to Burkina to Niger, that that it can't be laid at the feet of Keita, and it can't even be laid at the feet of any single military. I mean, this is a this is a real regional trend, and and you know, the causes are complicated, and I don't fully understand the causes myself, but they have to do in part with, you know, relatively weak states and 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 you know, militaries with limited capacity basically lashing out at, at rural populations. You know. Um, so anyway, I mean, the, just the overall trends are bad, yeah. And then you add sort of political bumps in the road like this. And, and probably on the whole, I would guess that the coup will... I don't know. I was going to say that the coup will make things worse. I mean, it's, maybe, it's too, maybe it's too soon to tell, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad sign. It's a bad sign not necessarily because of this immediate moment, but just because it suggests that even whoever replaces Keita may end up back in the same place. Um, I guess, I mean, I guess, I mean, one thing to add is that, you know, I mean, if we were going to look at the next most vulnerable country, it would definitely be Burkina. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the 1 million displaced, um, you know, I've thought about saying, I mean, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll say here, you know, I'd, I'd be looking at what happened in Mali. How can one look at Burkina Faso and say that they're not, you know, at high risk of the same scenario? I mean, the president there is up for, for reelection later this year. Um, incumbents tend to win. He he came in in 2015 after um, the popular revolution in Burkina in 2014. Um, but he's already, you know, confronted just tremendous and growing problems in the country and, and seems to be, from the limited polling that I've seen, seems to be already quite unpopular. Um, if he wins in 2020, how, how does he make it in office to 2025 with the continuation of current trends, you know, without some kind of of coup, basically, or, or some kind of second popular uprising there. Um, so, yeah, I think that, I mean, no country, all the countries in the region are, are unique. They're all on their own political calendars. They, they all, you know, their crises are, are both partly spillovers from Mali, but also heavily, heavily localized and, and domestic. But on the other hand, yeah, the Mali example uh, shows, shows, that, that things could get even worse in other countries as well. So, all right, so let's, let's kind of get a little more inward focused then and talk about what may happen next in Mali. Um, I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to, to a lot of sort of pieces to that question, but um, you know, you talked about the, the sort of uh, some of the problems that have faced, Sahelian countries and in, in you know fighting against Islamists, one of the big ones being uh, abuses by their own security forces that sort of drive people away, not necessarily into the arms of right. uh, jihadists, but certainly drive people away from the government or from you know kind of supporting the government and create uh, an environment where security is more difficult. Uh, military coup. Uh, is not going to fix that problem, right? The military is not going to step in and uh, control itself, uh, or it's un let's say it's very unlikely to uh, to address that kind of thing. Um, there is the still, you know, something we mentioned a few times that's still dangling 2015 uh, peace deal with the Tuareg rebellion in the north that has never been fully implemented. Um, there is the struggle to improve the Malian economy generally, which is going to be more difficult as long as you have uh, ECOWAS, for example, kind of blockading the borders and uh, trying to pressure the coup leaders that way into into uh, a civilian transition. 
Um, and I think, uh, you know, at some point it, it seems likely that this honeymoon, this sort of we're glad to be rid of uh, the last guy feeling is going to wear off and people are going to start to say, okay, now what? Um, and I wonder, you know, if you have some thoughts on, on the direction that uh, th- things may go from here in Mali. Yeah, I mean, n- nobody nobody knows, I think, including the hunter. I mean, it seems like the whether it came from the hunter, whether it was a trial balloon or not, that, that the idea of a three-year transition was relatively poorly received and and maybe a sense that that would be too long um on the other hand the junta doesn't want to i think immediately surrender power without without being able to sort of set the terms of the transition a bit more so i guess those are the basic parameters right not not a two-week transition and not a three-year transition Um, i wonder if i mean i know this this isn't your uh region but i i wonder if uh something might emerge like what's happened in Sudan where you have this sort of uh, kind of uneasy <laughs> cooperation, I guess, between a, a military junta and a civilian component to a transitional government that already looks like it's falling apart. So, I mean, it's not like an optimistic thing to say, but uh, I wonder if, if something like that could emerge where you have uh, uh, the opposition and the, the junta working together in a sense or trying to at least. That's a really interesting parallel. I mean, and I, I don't follow Sudan closely. I mean, I would, I guess I would, I mean, not to like say that the rank of the soldiers or something like determines everything, but they seem to be maybe two notches less powerful and influential than some of the key figures in, in Sudan, from what I know. Yeah, I mean, Sudan was definitely a general's coup, and this is a colonel's coup, so they're different in that sense. But no, but on the other hand, I mean, like I said before, I mean, the, the 2012 coup was a captain's coup. And even even with that, there there were there were lingering questions. I mean, that, that even resurfaced from time to time about that captain's political influence. You know, so if there were questions about his political influence, then definitely. I mean, and these guys, you know, seem just a lot savvier than than he was. Um, yeah. I mean, they they may want they may want to preserve some real, you know, political influence. uh going forward and yeah i mean and they've talked about naming a general as the head of the transition so i mean even the you know or or there's been talk of that maybe i shouldn't attribute that to them but but in any case i mean it's not even clear that this will be a civilian transition um and if they're in power for you know a year or something you know especially if it's a military-led transition then yeah that could that could be a chance for them to build some substantial political influence i mean including over the long term i mean in niger one of the declared presidential candidates for this year is, is the leader of the the junta that was in power for for about a year in, in 2010 2011 um so people sometimes even resurface and come back um but yeah i mean then then the question becomes okay well okay who's going to lead the transition so is it going to be it seems like it'll be basically either a general or 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 a senior malian you know uh politician then have have elections um very likely that those elections will be won by by you know a relatively familiar member of the malian political class uh and then that person is basically just back where keita was in 2013 except the situation is even worse uh so i don't i mean unless you think that you know unless one thinks that 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 somebody could could do better just by virtue of of 
having more talent and, and being less personally corrupt, which is possible. But I think the, the structural, uh, what do we want to say? The structural headwinds will be against that person. There's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of parallels, I think, that, that for how this could go. And, and not none of them, I mean, very few of them are uh, like thread the needle into a positive outcome, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, uh, you know, you could, you could have it go the way that the, uh, the coup in, the 2014 coup in Thailand went, where there's now a quote-unquote civilian government that's headed by the general who led the junta and just retired and made himself that's prime minister and sort of... Uh, okay, okay. Um, you know, you could have it go the way that, you know, the, the transition in Myanmar went, where the military still basically runs the country or has enough influence to hold a veto over the civilian government at least um there's there's not a, a lot of ways forward here that look like you could actually get to uh just a just a fully civilian government again let alone a civilian government that could actually overcome all of the things that have that have proven to to kind of uh, thwart the last two civilian leaders of Mali, both of whom wound up in this place where they were uh, deeply unpopular and then overthrown in a military coup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, maybe people, I mean, if we're going for comparisons, I mean, people could look to, you know, Isufu, the current president of Niger, who came in after, he came in in 2011 after the 2010 coup there. You know, that transition was was pretty clean, Isufu came in, you know, and, and he was dealt he was dealt a bad hand too. I mean, he came in, you know, in in I want to say in April 2011. So it was after the Libyan revolution had begun to the north, and and you know, whatever, you know, uh, I guess about four no six months before the 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 killing of Gaddafi and so forth, and then Mali, you know, the the rebellion there broke out early 2012. So he was dealt a bad hand. Um, he you know he he played it i think quite well you know he he um placated and worked with you know potential rebel constituencies in his own country he uh you know helped helped i think you know helped niger avoid any sort of spillover from mali in 2012 he became a key sort of partner of of the americans and the european union in terms of counterterrorism and migration and everything on the other hand i mean the 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 hand that he was dealt in 2011 is probably still better than the hand that the next Malian president will be dealt, you know, in 2021 or whatever. Um, I mean, to have, you know, mass killing on one's own territory, you know, the moment one steps into office, it's, it's, it's really, that's really hard. One other thing that I wanted to mention, and I, I uh, thought about talking about it earlier when you were talking about this sort of, um, let's say conspiratorial, maybe not conspiracy thinking, but, you know, kind of conspiratorial thinking about the role that France plays in Mali among the, the Malian people. One of the other, uh, or one of the, like a real conspiracy theory that's uh, been batted around here in the wake of this coup is uh, the, the role of foreign military training. Um, you know, uh, all of I think all of these officers, or at least uh, a few of them, there's the five colonels uh, who are sort of have presented themselves as as the leaders uh, of the junta, and uh, at least three of them now, it turns out, have, have gotten foreign military training. The Daily Beast did this big kind of 
hair on fire thing about, oh, two of them were trained in Russia and they may have planned their coup uh, in Russia. And of course, Go- Goita, who's present, you know, kind of been the most prominent of these guys, uh, has done training in, in the Flintlock program with the United States, U.S. Special Forces. Um, there is a, a conspiracy theory that um, you know, somehow foreign, like the foreign military training is how to overthrow your government and take power. And I think it's, it's a little overblown. There, there is, has been research that suggests there's a correlation between, uh, at least us kind of training and officers attempting coups and succeeding <laughs> that strikes me. I mean, the, the connection strikes me as being much more benign than the kind of nefarious, um, you know, things that are applied to it. It strikes me as like these guys go off, they get training, they develop some skills, they 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 come back, they want, I don't know, better pay, more resources, whatever. Uh, they demand that of a government that either can't provide it or won't provide it. And now they have this extra training that makes them more effective at taking things into their own hands and kind of overthrowing the government to get what they want. I wonder, like... Uh, you know, if you have any any thoughts on this, it's a it's a strange kind of uh, uh, undying conspiracy theory to me that that um, you know the connection between these things. But I wonder if you have any any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, no, really, really, uh, really funny. I mean, yeah, the idea that like you know Putin has like some kind of whiteboard where you know first it says Ukraine and then that's crossed out. <laughs> United States and then right, that's right. crossed out and then Bali is number two. Yeah, it's like next on the list, man. You got to take it. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I, I see. I mean, I think, I guess, I mean, to me, I think that, you know, the Asime Goita, the, the, the leader of the junta, is is a, a special forces colonel. I mean, how could one be a special forces colonel in any military in the world and not have had some kind of foreign training, I mean, or, or foreign contact. I mean, it would seem to me much more correlation than causation that, that, that by the time, you know, you get to a certain level, you would have just had participated in those kinds of trainings and so forth. And um, so, no, I don't I don't see any foreign influence. You know, I, I don't think that um, I don't think any foreign powers knew about the coup in advance or, or well, I, I don't think any of them were involved in planning the coup. I think it's possible that you know, uh, I've gotten in trouble for saying this, but I, I think it's possible that France had a little bit of advance warning and decided, hey, you know, let's let's uh, let's just see how this plays out. I mean, but I don't think any foreign powers, you know, participated in the in the design of the coup. Um, I think it does show to me that that a lot of particularly the American and European trainings are are bullshit. I mean, our theater, you know. Some of them are supposed to be about civil military relations and human rights. And, you know, clearly, you know, and, and the people who attend those trainings are often either A, savvy and cynical or B, just much more familiar with realities on the ground in, in a way that, that, that the trainers aren't. I mean, you know, people can go to a human rights training and, and nod along. And then and then when they find themselves in the field, you know, maybe because of pressure from their own superiors, maybe because of what they perceive as the exigencies of the situation or, or, you know, maybe because the training didn't take, you know, then, then they're killing and torturing civilians. I mean, you know, so I I think a lot of money has been wasted and a lot of time has been wasted. And and there's been a lot of, you know, the U S and Europe, you know, patting themselves on the back about these trainings that, 
that ultimately have have no impact, have no impact in terms of, you know, propelling coups, but also have no impact in terms of, you know, quote unquote, like changing the culture of, of Malian or Sahelian security forces. Is there, I mean, is there a way that France, the United States, the, the international community, kind of outside of Africa, so I'm not talking necessarily about the AU or uh, ECOWAS, um, you know, is there a way that, that uh, the international community could interact with a country like Mali or, or, you know, other countries in the Sahel that would be, that wouldn't reinforce a lot of this stuff? Or, or you know, even if, if that way is to just kind of not interact or, or kind of reduce the level of interaction. But it seems like uh, one of the conclusions is that, you know, a lot of these um, attempts to sort of impose or create what the French government or what the U.S. government defines as stability in the, the Sahel wind up either doing the opposite or creating this sort of uh, theater of stability that doesn't really reflect the kind of reality on the ground for people. Um, do you see any anything that could be changed, that could be improved to to sort of actually make things better? I mean, I think that... I mean, it's a lot easier for me to criticize than to, <laughs> to be constructive. I mean... <laughs> I think I mean I've thought you know I I mean I spent I spent a year working at the State Department on Nigeria in, in 2013 2014 and and since that time you know I've felt that first of all that at, at least at the level of of sort of low hanging fruit that American diplomats could cast a broader net when they talk to the the uh, about who whom they talk to within you know say African countries or, or maybe any country I mean. You know, and I, I think that the the American ambassador and um, the special envoy for the Sahel, Peter Pham, um, conveyed during the protest this summer that what I would call an attitude of, of contempt. I mean, I'm sure they would I'm sure they would dismiss that, but you know, or, or, or reject that framing on my part. But but you know, the way that they talked about the protest was saying, you know, we're we're you know we're opposed to any extra constitutional change of power in Mali and and the protesters weren't calling necessarily for an extra constitutional change of power they were calling for the president to resign which he can do under the Mali constitution um, and in fact ironically now his resignation may be used as sort of his resignation under duress by the military may be used as a kind of legal fiction to say that it wasn't really a coup. Um, so I think that they could have, I think American diplomats, I mean, I don't think they have to go out and, you know, march with the protesters or something like that. But I think that they could have, you know, taken a, a less contemptuous kind of line and, and, and could, could you know, meet with more people and really sort of listen more to, you know, what what Malians are saying. Um, I think that, I think that, I do think that the the the, 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 the so-called kinetic counterterrorism operations are, are probably doing more harm than good at this point. I mean, you could you could always uh, make the argument from the counterfactual, right? That that wouldn't things be substantially worse, you know, were it not for Barkhan or were it not for you know other kinds of counterterrorism initiatives? And maybe maybe that's right. I mean, maybe things would be even worse. On the other hand, I mean, this is the the situation is atrocious. I mean. You know, the, the displacement, the, the rising levels of, you know, sometimes it seems like exponentially rising levels of, of civilian fatalities, the, the multi-directional character of the violence. It's not just jihadists, you know, 
it's uh, I mean, as you know well, I mean, it's it's intercommunal violence, it's it's state security forces and so forth. I mean, this uh, so to say like, oh, the situation would be a lot worse without Barkhan. It's like, well, well, what what would that mean for it to be like even worse than this? Um, so I do think I do think there are things they could do on that that the U.S. and France and others could do on the on the positive side. You know, talking with more people and 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 listening more. Um, but I also think that they could. I think that they're doing some harm and and could 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 pull back on on some of the security deployments and uh, see if that doesn't actually make things better. All right, last thing. Uh, I know you have a book coming out uh, at some point later this year. Um, tell people about that and. Um, you know, how, how, has it become a little more relevant now because of the coup? And uh, just tell people about the book and and when they can expect it. No, I mean, I I, I joked the other day that uh, I mean it's it's now completely overtaken by events. <laughs> Um, my my uh, my conclusion about how the next ten years were going to be a struggle between uh, eBay Khan and Abdul Malik Drukdel for the soul of the Sahel, you know. Is, um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, yeah, well, I mean that that yeah, well. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, yeah. So it's a it's a, it's basically a history of of jihadism and politics in in North Africa and the Sahel. Um, by North Africa, I mean in particular Algeria and Libya. Uh, from from the 1990s to the present, um, so looking at the rise of different jihadist groups, in particular Al Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, and then and then JNIM, which which you mentioned before uh, several times. Um, so looking at them, looking at at the at the politics within those groups, um, how different field commanders have struggled with each other or with their superiors for for political power within the groups, and then how. The groups have interacted with local politics around them and, and basically saying that, you know, oftentimes one reads all oh, jihadists exploit ungoverned spaces or fragile states or conflicts. Um, and the book tries to say that it's it's a lot more um, complicated than that and, and, and that, that political pressures can go in both ways, that, that local populations and local elites can sometimes really uh, actually constrain and shape what jihadists do. Um, that everybody adapts to one another um, or, or contends for, for power with one another. And it's supposed to be out end of next month, right? Is that is that correct? Yeah, I actually, um, I think, you know, because, because I mean, production schedules are, are, I think, a little bit variable, but I think uh, probably around October. Okay. Hopefully. All right. Well, people should be on the lookout for that. Um, and... Uh, you know, I would I would say we'll have you back to talk about Molly again, but it's kind of assumed that you will be back to talk about Molly at some point. Uh, that's just the way things go. Uh, and maybe even, you know, before that, to talk about some other uh, country in the region the next time there's a political crisis uh, in one of them, which is almost inevitable. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, it goes unsaid that you're, uh, you know, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, Alex Thurston, again, thank you for, for being on the program. Uh, the blog is sahelblog.wordpress.com. Uh, and the book is Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel Local Politics and Rebel Groups, uh, again, coming out sometime this fall. Thanks again, Alex, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Well, thanks a lot for having me.
Once again, I want to thank Alex Thurston for coming on the program. His blog, again, is sahelblogoneword.wordpress.com. I'll put a link in the show description. Uh, and the book, Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel Local Politics and Rebel Groups, uh, will be out sometime this fall if you are interested. Um, I apologize for the audio quality. I do this far too often, I know, but I felt like there was a, we had another kind of weird Skype experience. Uh, and again, I know I keep blaming Skype when the problem is really probably me, uh, but I tried to get the, the audio levels um, as close as I could, but I know there are parts of this uh, where I'm too loud or Alex is too soft or both. Uh, and I do apologize for that. And I, as always, thank you for sticking with my very amateur efforts uh, to produce this podcast. Uh, with that said, uh, I'd like to, to make a special... Um, you know, extend my special uh, wishes to the folks on the Gulf Coast, if there's anybody uh, listening who lives in that region, uh, as you guys face down Hurricane Laura, I hope you're, uh, you've evacuated as the National Weather Service uh, has advised, or at least are uh, hunkered down and prepared for what seems like it's going to be a pretty nasty storm. So best wishes from foreign exchanges to, to you folks uh, and to any of your friends, family, you know, loved ones of any description who are uh, in the path of this storm. Um, with that, uh, I think we are done here. So until next time, as always, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.